When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Our sanctions are likely to wipe out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gain. The rest of the world are going to need to come to the table with resources to rebuild Ukraine. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We're going to have these continued new variants. It's important to continue to vaccinate the world as new variants can come in those other places. Issues like opioids, mental health, curing cancer, helping our veterans. Democrats and Republicans have a lot of common ground on those issues. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Some days D.C. is stuck in gridlock and some days Congress passes a ban on Russian oil, ends normal trade relations with Russia and confirms the first black justice on the Supreme Court all in the span of a few hours. We've got a lot to do today and to break it down, we're going to be talking later uh, with Congressman Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina and Hagar Chamali. Uh, uh, the, fir- the former senator, uh, senior policy advisor in the Treasury sanctioned division, division on the latest in Russia, Ukraine, and of course, talk a little bit more about uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, the first black woman uh, who is going to be on the Supreme Court. She cleared that Senate nomination today. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. Well, now we are excited to welcome to the show Congressman Ralph Norman. He's a Republican from South Carolina. Uh, Congressman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm going to get started right off with talking a little bit about immigration, because you are a member of the Homeland Security Committee. You've got that focus on the southern border. Big news uh, this week, of course, was President Biden's decision to make it easier uh, to lift, sorry, rather lift COVID-19 restrictions at the southern border. This is known as Title 42. It made it easier to turn away many immigrants during the pandemic. And Congressman, I know a lot of Republicans have really criticized Biden's plan to do this now. But I'm wondering, as we're seeing COVID restrictions being lifted across the country, when would be the right time to do something on Title 42 and these COVID-19 restrictions at the southern border? Yeah, I'm glad to be with you, Emily. Well, well, first of all, you know, Title 42 was put in place uh, back in March of 2020. It expires on May 23rd of, of this year. Um, you know, under President Trump, it was put in so you could, one, uh, have a way of getting, have a, uh, a statute that gave reason to take the illegal uh, crossings and put them back in, in Mexico. Uh, now, when you take off all of the uh, restrictions, which Title 42 is a huge, was a huge detriment 
you know, had gave some teeth into us trying to know who was coming across the border. And by doing this, um, they're estimating anywhere from 15,000 per day to 18,000 per day. And, you know, when you do the math, uh, if, if it's 15,000 a day, it's 450,000 a month or 5,400 uh, in 12 months, if it keeps at that pace. Uh, South Carolina, our population is 5.2. So what you're talking about is potentially having the, the, uh, the population of our state going all over the country. And it's not the fact of COVID on the, you know, being on the, uh, on the, uh, downside. The fact that is that with, with illegal immigration, you don't know who's coming in here and the terrorists, the, uh, the drugs, it's just a, it's insane what this administration is letting happen to this country. So, so, Congressman, if I could follow up on that, if those numbers bear out or anything remotely close to those numbers bear out and there really is a, a surge of people coming to the border and Title 42 is allowed to expire, and I know Republicans are trying to stop that and that's part of the, this COVID holdup and everything, but if, if this does expire, uh, what is Congress's next move? Are there more resources needed at the border? What would your response be and what's the right policy follow-up uh, if we do see uh, a major influx of people to the, uh, arriving at the U.S. border. Well, first of all, the, you know we got a Yvette Harrell's got a discharge petition up that I think we're over. We need two eighteen. We're probably seven short. We have zero Democrats on it, or maybe ten short. We get to two eighteen. For your listeners, that the discharge petition just allows Congress to take an up or down vote if you want to keep it in place or if you do not want to keep it in place. So if that fails, uh, I think you will have states like Texas start to doing it, uh, you know, calling in the National Guard on their own and take, just taking a chance because this is an invasion. There's no other word to, to describe it other than a, an invasion. And so I think you'll have Texas uh, leading the way on this. Abbott has kind of suggested that, but whether it'll actually happen. But the only way to to get a handle and have orderly legal immigration, just get the wall built, have points of entry, and keep Title 42 uh, in place. I mean, if you, if you talk to the Border Patrol agents, it's um, we've got a crisis on our hands. And, you know, to, to try to get any type of, type of explanation is it's just not there. You, the, the only th- conclusion I've come to is power. It's keeping power. They think the votes are coming. Congressman, I, I do want to ask also, because we are beginning to see a lot of Ukrainian and eventually Russian refugees who are going to be coming to the southern border seeking to get into the U.S., I mean, what does Congress need to do to make sure that those with a valid claim for asylum are able to come into the safety of the U.S.? Well, the only way to do it, uh, Emily, is to, again, have a designated point of entry and vet these people. And we had a uh, we had a we were on the floor last night at at nine thirty just telling why this is so dangerous for this country, and uh, the only way to do it is is to have designated points of entry, test them to see what type of disease they've got, and it's not just COVID. You've got TB, you've got uh, you just don't know, and to have them distributed all over this nation. Uh, if COVID was that much of an issue, why weren't they testing them? You know, since this administration took office, and it it was it's bizarre to say the least on why they did what they did, particularly this numbers of people that are coming in. 
they, if, if you and, talk to Mark Morgan and others, we've got anywhere from right now anywhere from three to well two to five million illegals in this country being distributed all over to every city and county and, in this country. And, and Congressman, I know I know this is something you can you can talk about at length. Certainly a, a very comprehensive issue. But you know part of the reason that Title Forty Two was so much talked about this week is that it played that role in winding up stalling that ten billion dollars in COVID funding. Uh, the White House is saying that this funding is very much needed. In fact, uh, we have a little bit of sound now uh, from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki at today's press briefing speaking about it. Let's listen to we, that. We uh, are very concerned about the failure of Congress to continue to fund our COVID response, the fact that we have needed to therefore end our program for the uninsured. We are not going to be able to uh, make purchases of uh, a broad scope of boosters of, of, um, of Evisheld, who, which is uh, a treatment for immunocompromised or preventative treatment for immunocompromised, uh, that when we get to the end of June, our testing capacity will be at risk of collapsing. And as we're looking broadly beyond the White House of how we're planning. That is our greatest, biggest concern at this point in time. You know, Congressman, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. If you think that this additional funding is needed at this point, is this something you're willing to support? Absolutely not. That's just words, Jinsaki. They never were tested to begin with. I mean, they cut Border Patrol funding. I mean, the, the Border Patrol cannot keep up with people coming across this border. Well, either. I guess, They're Congressman, not, if I can interrupt you for a minute, I guess I'm thinking more about, you know, Americans, about additional vaccines, additional medications and treatments for those who already have COVID. It seems like that's where most of this $10 billion would be focused. Is that needed to protect American lives? Absolutely not. If they were... I mean, you could, you can't. If you go to the individual states now uh, and and try to get a handle on who's where the funds are being distributed, how they're applied to each American in each state, you can't get it because they don't know. Um, and the fact that uh, there's no offsets for this, if they were even trying to uh, to, to offset this with uh, with the spending that's going on. Uh, it's just adding to the inflation number, and it's, it's, we haven't seen any type of offsets, cuts, whatever you want to call them, on anything. It's all, we need this, we need that. But her words that we need it for, um, you know, it, it doesn't apply to the five to, five to eight million that are coming in here. And you, we're not, you're not hearing from any state that I know of that's requesting more uh, dollars for vaccinations. You can get a vaccination, and, and it's it's on the uh, it's it's not the pandemic that it once was a year ago. Uh, Congressman, I, I got to push you a little bit on on one immigration point, just because you know for years the, these immigration issues that are debated in Congress have kind of fallen apart. They they've turned very very partisan. It doesn't seem like we've seen a lot of uh, bipartisan agreement on them. And, and, and talking to at least some Democrats on these issues, you know, when when you say in the context of Title 42 and people arriving at the border, in your words, this is an invasion. I, I mean, is that counterproductive? We're, we're seeing a literal invasion uh, of Ukraine uh, from Russia. I, I've just got to push you a little bit on the use of that phrase and ask it. Is that that's uh, that sounds like something that may be a bit counterproductive if, if you're really looking for any agreement on how to approach uh, the numbers of people who may arrive at the border? Well, I mean, call it what you want. Call it, uh, I mean, illegal immigration. Call it, uh, you know, you can pick a term to describe it, but we haven't seen these numbers in the history of this country that I know of uh, at this point in time. Uh, and we, no, we're not going to have agreement because they just don't agree. If 
if, if they won't even agree to allow Title 42 to come on the floor and debate it, like that's what we're sent to Congress for, to even debate it, an up or down vote. And that's what Pelosi's doing it. That's why we're have, having to do the discharge petition. So there will be no bipartisanship because they won't even allow honest discussion about it. And I'm not, I don't care about the terminology. I do care about uh, what it's doing to our cities and counties all over this country. The, the physical impact is having. Talk to any policeman that's going to have to, to police these areas that uh, have this mass migration uh, into the uh, into the their particular city. They don't to not know who's coming in makes no sense, and and, and they know it. It's just part of their, their part of what they're doing, to, along with everything else. Well, Congressman, uh, thank you so much for for joining us today. That was Congressman Ralph Norman, Republican from South Carolina, member of the Homeland Security Committee. Uh, Definitely touching on on immigration, Jack, which we're going to be hearing a lot, going to be a very contentious topic, uh, especially as we get into the midterms. Coming up, we are going to assemble the panel and get into the historic confirmation of the first black woman on the Supreme Court and then later talk a little on Russia and Ukraine. I'm Emily Wilkins with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Ketanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed just this afternoon to the United States Supreme Court, making her the first black woman confirmed to be a justice in its ranks. It was a 53-47 vote. We'll discuss that with our panel. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my Bloomberg government colleague, Emily Wilkins. We're bringing in Matt Bennett, Democratic strategist, a a former Clinton White House hand and a co-founder over at Third Way, as well as Greta Joins from Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber and Shrek. She is their co-chair on technology and telecoms practice. Uh, We've got to touch on uh, the significance of today's vote. I noticed there were a, mum- a number of Congressional Black Caucus members uh, who made their way over to the Senate to view the vote. Uh, this was a 53-47 vote. Senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney were the Republicans who joined Democrats in support. Uh, and here is what it sounded like when the first uh, black uh, vice president, Kamala Harris, first black woman vice president Kamala Harris as well, obviously uh, called the vote. Here's what that sounded like. 
On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. In a strange week in Washington where we saw 100 to 0 votes on Russian sanction issues, a COVID package fall apart, it was uh, almost a little surreal to see uh, sort of a moment of real momentum for Democrats, at least, who cared a lot about this vote. Uh, Matt, put this in context for us. Before we get into the specifics of how she's going to affect the court, uh, this is a, a Democratic Party that's kind of looking for some victories after struggles on their legislative agenda. Uh, just put this vote in context for us today. What does this do for Democrats who, who wanted some sort of victory? I think it's a really important moment for the country and for Democrats. Obviously, uh, soon to be Justice Jackson is, is an historic uh, new member of the court for all sorts of reasons. And uh, look, presidents don't generally get to pick a lot of Supreme Court justices. Sometimes uh, the, they get lucky, I guess uh, you could say about Trump, he got three. But for the most part, Supreme Court openings are very rare. And this is a very, very big deal for the White House and the president and for Democrats generally. And I think you saw all 50 senator, uh, Democratic senators vote uh, for this nominee, along with three Republicans. So there was a return to Democratic unity that's been somewhat lacking in the last several months uh, as the Senate has wrangled over uh, parts of the president's agenda. So I think uh, the ability to get this very, very important thing done with Democratic unity is going to matter. And then finally, this was a promise that the president made during the campaign to the people who really constitute the iron core of the Democratic base, and that's African-American women. African-American women are the most loyal Democrats. They almost always vote for Democrats. Uh, they're vital to our coalition, and this was a promise kept to them and uh, to many others. You know, Matt, you really did a good job there kind of laying out what this means for Democrats. Greta, you're a Republican strategist. I, I want to come to you on what this kind of means for Republicans. You saw a nominations process that had some very contentious points for Senator Cruz, Senator Hawley, really grilling Judge Jackson on her rulings in child pornography cases. But then you also saw three Republicans come out and vote for her. Um, wh what does what sort of re read the tea leaves here as far as what we learned about the state of the Republican Party from this nomination process? I think when you look back, and I, I think Republicans felt that that they contained most of their concerns around her record to be her judicial record. They, they don't feel they got personal into her personal life, which certainly they felt was the case during um, Amy Comey Barrett's and Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation processes. So I, I, I think that ultimately Republicans felt that, that they stuck to the facts and feel very comfortable with how that process worked, but are also thankful to be on the other side of it where they can start focusing on things that ultimately they believe will help them in November, which are inflation, which is gas prices, and which is COVID response by the administration. Right. Uh, Greta, I want to follow up on Mitt Romney in particular, because uh, in the previous vote for the lower court, when uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson was confirmed, she got three Republican votes, but it was Collins, Murkowski, and Lindsey Graham. This time, Mitt Romney, who had previously opposed her, supported her. Uh, can you explain Mitt Romney to us? What, what do you think changed his mind? I think that Senator Romney had more time 
to sit down with her and ultimately became more comfortable with her record. Also, I think that as Senator Durbin mentioned on the floor today, the Senator Romney's father um, certainly had a, a voice during the civil rights movement. And I think that ultimately was persuasive uh, to Senator Romney about the importance of having a, an African-American woman on the court. Matt, um, uh, on the Democratic side, it, it, actually a point made by Republicans who opposed Katanji Brown-Jackson was there, there was, a, in their words, more of a, an activist push in the Democratic Party for Jackson over any other candidates. I, I mean, spell this out for us, especially if a guy who was at the Clinton White House, you're at Third Way. Is Katanji Brown-Jackson actually sort of a product of a push by any sort of far-left activists? And, and how would that manifest itself? Do, do the does the far left have somebody on the court now? No, uh, that was always a nonsense talking point from Republicans, but it's become standard fare, unfortunately, uh, really for both sides. I think it's uh, less credible uh, recently when Republicans have leveled it, because for the most part, Democratic presidents have, have nominated fairly moderate uh, people to the court, including uh, Judge Jackson and certainly Merrick Garland, who never even got a hearing uh, because of the obstructionism that we saw Mitch McConnell and other Republicans pose uh, under uh, President Obama. So th this notion that she's some sort of radical activist is, is, is silly. She got 54 votes when she was up for uh, the D.C. Circuit, which is uh, often called the second highest court in the land, a very, very important court. Four Republicans voted for her. Um, and you had the spectacle of people like Lindsey Graham complaining that the, the, a South Carolinian that he wanted nominated didn't get nominated, and therefore he wasn't going to vote for Judge Jackson. So the whole thing was just a, a game that Republicans are playing. And it's part of the politicization of the nominating process that I think is very bad for the court uh, in the long run. Well, you know, on that note, I, I think this is a, a big moment for Democrats to some extent. I'd point out, though, she doesn't actually start. The next t term doesn't start until October. Uh, this this is sort of an issue that settles down a bit, uh, and it's it's not as if there's a big case in front of uh, Justice Jackson now, uh, but a moment of victory for Democrats when they really wanted one. Coming up, we're going to talk to Hagar Chamali, CEO of Greenwich Media Strategies, former Treasury official. With Emily Wilkins, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1 to New York, Bloomberg 1130 to Boston, Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960 to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119 and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. At the end of February, President Biden said to give sanctions he put on Russia a month to start working. Well, it is early April now. It's been more than a month now. And we're going to check in with Hogar Chamali, the CEO at Greenwich Media Strategies and the former senior policy advisor in the Treasury's sanctions division. I'm Emily Wilkins here with my co-host Jack Fitzpatrick. We're filling in for Joe Matthew today. Well, joining us now is Hagar Chamali. Uh, she knows a lot about sanctions. She understands a lot of the impact that they are having. Uh, we're really great, uh, gracious that you could join us today. Uh, I'm just going to start right off by, I think, asking the, the big picture question here. How hard are the sanctions that U.S. and other nations have put on Russia 
hitting their economy? Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, they're hitting them hard, and, and it, the economy is, is really suffering writ large, and you have a lot of examples of that. So first you've got the ruble is jumping all over the place. Um, you, you know, it crashed a month ago. Now, it, when it goes up, I wouldn't really put much stock into that because that's just typically what happens with economies that, that are in flux. Um, it will probably go back down again. Um, their domestic product will shrink this year. 15% is what, what is expected. Um, and they just they haven't had a recession of this kind since the 90s. You have things like factories that are shutting down. You have thousands of people. Uh, I read a, a statistic showing that 95,000 workers in Russia were furloughed and 60,000 were laid off. This is according to Raymond James. So you have unemployment growing, you have inflation growing, you have empty shelves at supermarkets. So the, the sanctions are hitting the Russian economy very hard. And you see Russian elites and oligarchs and business folk and, and political officials, you see them trying to maneuver by trying to move their assets and get loans. I see there are workarounds they're trying mm-hmm. to pursue in Turkey and in Syria. But I should be I want to be very clear that if they find workarounds by converting their their assets to the Turkish lira, to the Syrian pound, that is not a good sign for them. That is barely a workaround because those currencies really don't mean much globally. Well, Hagar, I guess then, so the, it sounds like the economic situation, it's not good. It could, it's in line to get worse. But what is this all going to mean for Putin and for the invasion? At what point do we start seeing the economy actually impact how Putin is thinking about the invasion in Ukraine? Right. You're asking the question the right way, because at the end of the day, the point of the sanctions is to disrupt and dismantle all the financial networks that support the Kremlin and that allow it to finance its war machine. And that is that is ultimately the goal. It's not to, to hurt the broader population um, by by causing this inflation and a crash of its currency and so on. And so that's what takes time. And that's what's been proven with sanctions that you've seen in other sanctions regimes. For example, the Iranian, uh, the, the sanctions against Iran are a perfect example of that. They took the sanctions against Iran. The toughest ones were the oil sanctions. And it took two years before the Iranian government was compelled to come to the negotiating table. But those are the sanctions that hit them the hardest. And so the steps you've seen for, for sure that the U.S. has taken, targeting every angle, the sanctions, of course, from Europe, uh, we're, we're waiting for them to, to take more action against Russia's oil sector. That The oil sector is 30 percent of Russia's economy. But targeting its coal is a really good first step. And they've already pledged anyway to cut back on their imports from of Russia, oil and gas. I hope that they expedite that even sooner. That type of move, really siphoning off Russian oil and gas exports, that's what's going to make Putin feel the pain even more. It is a language that he'll understand. Ultimately, the language he understands the most is the threat of military force. And so I don't want to equate the threat of sanctions to the threat of military force when it comes to changing his behavior and compelling him to negotiate. Um, But it helps further the pressure, and it helps, most importantly, limit his ability to finance his violence machine. And you've already seen that with reports saying that the Russians are unable to fix or, or create new tanks.
So if that's the most important thing, more or less defunding the Russian war effort to the greatest extent possible, what do you make of the portion of sanctions just announced yesterday that target uh, Vladimir Putin's daughters, Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov's wife and daughter? You know, we talked early on in this, so many people talked about target Putin, target his wealth, uh, maybe as if that would change his mind. Does that actually have that much of, of an effect? Or what did you make of those uh, sanctions? announced yesterday sure so the first thing i saw when i saw those sanctions they were they're very familiar to me having been on the other side working working in sanctions for a long time because at the end of the day when you target political officials in particular or their or elite they always turn to their relatives to move assets uh, and put the assets in their name or so that those relatives can raise move and store funds for them and so it's a it is a very a typical move, but on behalf of the Treasury Department, to move, if you will, to the next layer of the onion is how I like to call it. So any sanction, it targets, if you will, the, the center of the onion. Mm-hmm. And then as time wears on, they continue to go to those outer layers to ensure that the target remains isolated, that they can't find any workarounds or ways to evade or circumvent those sanctions. And that's the first thing I, I noticed when I saw that they targeted the relatives of these individuals. It and- is to, to make sure they get the message that we're going to go at them from every angle. They're not going to be able to sell their businesses through their relatives or move their assets uh, or have bank accounts that remain open. Which is interesting because we also saw something similar with the oligarchs, uh, sanctions that targeted not just them, but also their families. Um, I did want to ask one quick question. We've only got a few seconds left here. Uh, so I'm putting you on the spot. But what more sanctions should be done? What else should Congress and the Biden administration be considering right now? The Congress, I would like to see Congress consider secondary sanctions because that's what's going to get the whole world to really join us in this effort. You have a lot of partners already, Europe, Canada, Australia, Japan, but there are more countries like India who need to jump on, um, China who needs, that needs to feel the pressure. Secondary sanctions will do that. That's the first. And the second is targeting more of Russia's economic sectors. So that's things like palladium, platinum, nickel, aluminum, steel, timber, in a way, of course, that that prevents backlash on our businesses. And Europe really needs to target the Russian oil and gas sector, of course, by making sure that they have steps in place to have other sources of Russian oil, of, of oil and gas and the infrastructure to import it. But those are the three most important things. That's excellent. Well, thank you so much to Hagar Chamali. Uh, really appreciate you joining us uh, today. Uh, obviously, we'll be keeping an eye on sanctions. We did get the news today um, that Europe is trying to ban some Russian coal imports and one of the big energy hits. Uh, and coming up next, we're going to be assembling the panel, recapping what we have so far in the week. I'm Emily Wilkins with Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Ma- Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. 
The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services, and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, the Senate has left town and the $10 billion COVID relief bill is still sitting somewhere in someone's desk. That is stalled for probably a couple weeks as lawmakers left for a two-week recess after this. They'll pick that up uh, at a certain point in time in the future. We are fascinated by the developments on that. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here with my Bloomberg government colleague, Emily Wilkins. We are in for Joe this week. We're going to bring in our panel, including Matt Bennett from Third Way and Greta Joins from Brownstein, Hyatt, Farber, and Shrek. Uh, guys, the, the latest I've heard on this COVID bill that the White House has pushed very hard for, Democrats pushed very hard for, a number of Republicans were interested in, is that they're going to let it lie for a couple of weeks. They left town. Uh, there's interest in this $10 billion domestic bill. There's also interest in a, a follow-up. Remember, this bill is less than half of what the White House asked for. They, they didn't include global vaccine relief, that kind of thing, uh, any international aid. There's interest in doing that. But I, I caught up with Senator Roy Blunt today uh, in an echoey hallway, so I apologize for the, the sound quality. Uh, he is the top Republican in the Senate for funding health and Human Services, uh, and he acknowledged the uh, the confusion about exactly what's going to get done and what is uh, needed, and how it depends on uh, whether there's going to be a wave or not. Let's play that sound. Nobody thought that even the domestic money would last, in all likelihood, through the summer. But with COVID, you don't know. It might last longer than that. It might go a lot quicker than that. So we really don't know. What we do know are that these accounts are out of money. And if they're replenished, they need to be replenished through the normal, through an appropriation process that the Congress directs. Matt Bennett, Greta joins join, uh, join us on our uh, our panel now. Matt, I, I've got to take your temperature on this. Uh, we heard about these needs. We heard initially from the White House about $22.5 billion in COVID needs. Uh, and now we see a $10 billion bill stall seemingly for a, a couple weeks. Uh, to what extent is Congress just dropping the ball? And, and what does that mean for uh, the immediate future of therapeutics, vaccines, et cetera? I think it's a terrible uh, kind of uh, abdication and responsibility on the part of Congress. The Speaker of the House has COVID. I mean, there's COVID rampaging through New York City, uh, through uh, official Washington, the gridiron dinner where a bunch of, uh, you know, poobahs from Washington go. There was all kinds of COVID being spread there. So COVID's not over, unfortunately. Luckily, because of vaccines, uh, hospitalizations are not ticking up yet, but they probably will because not enough people are vaccinated. So we're going to need more money for uh, COVID therapeutics, for vaccines and uh, intervention. And the fact that Congress left town without doing anything to address the the shortfall is appalling. I must say also that 
failing to fund international vaccines is penny wise and pound insanely foolish. Um, COVID does not respect borders. It travels globally very, very quickly. Uh, and so do variants. And so our uh, refusal to help the world get vaccinated is going to come back to haunt us if we don't fix that. Uh, Greta, I also want to get your thoughts on this, because we did hear earlier from Congressman Ralph Norman. He's a Republican, and he didn't think that he did not support this additional amount of funding for these vaccines and additional medications. I'm wondering kind of how you see this this pattern continue, because we did see a lot of funding initially come from Congress. As this pandemic continues, are we going to have to see it start coming from other places? Well, I think the fundamental problem here and the, and the disagreement that Republicans have with Democrats is where is the money that we've already allocated for COVID? And a lot of those funds are going to states which don't necessarily need it. They haven't spent the money that they have been already allocated. They're set to get millions more dollars next month. And they really don't have a concrete plan on how to spend it specifically to combat COVID. I think Republicans would like to take a look at money that we have already spent and look at, at possible ways that we could fiscally be a little bit more conservative and perhaps reallocate those funds and look at where where we need it. I, I don't think that Republicans want to put any American in a you know a bad spot if there is another wave, if if we need to allocate more money. But right now, the United States does not have a vaccine shortage. We we don't have a PPE shortage. So ultimately, can we use some of the funds that the states were going to get for purposes that you know we may need down the road? And I, I think Republicans and particularly Senate Republicans, and as you heard the congressman say earlier, well, certainly House Republicans will feel that we certainly should look at that as a possibility. You know, Greta, a little more on that point. Uh, I thought it was very interesting um, yesterday when we spoke with Chris Meekins, who worked at HHS during the Trump administration. Uh, yes, on, on one hand, Republicans have fought for offsets, so this isn't just borrowing money for these resources. And many Republicans, including Senator Blunt, uh, have said, we, we do want to fund these programs. But one program in particular that they're closing down now, I believe they've cut off uh, the funds already, is the program that pays back healthcare providers uh, for vaccinations for people who are uninsured. And Chris made the point yesterday, eventually that kind of program was going to have to end. Uh, you, you can pay out of pocket if you don't have uh, insurance. I, I just want to understand, from a, a Republican point of view, are we getting toward a point where offsets aside, um, Title 42 aside, do Republicans want to see a greater wind down of direct COVID aid like that program? I think that Republicans want to ensure that dollars are being spent in a way that is transparent and, and they can ultimately be accountable to their constituents for it. I, I certainly think that Republicans feel that getting as many Americans vaccinated as possible is a good thing. I think the question is how many Americans are out there who aren't currently vaccinated, who want to get vaccinated, and where exactly can we allocate those dollars to reach those individuals? I'm not sure that we have potentially looked at finding those Americans and persuading them in a way that it ultimately just makes sense to keep throwing dollars at it without a plan.
Um, now, as Matt mentioned, Speaker Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi, tested positive today, uh, her office announced, for the coronavirus. This is a little bit of a wave. Uh, I, I don't know in the macro sense exactly where the D.C. numbers will go, but we've heard uh, of a number of high-profile people, Merrick Garland, uh, Gina Raimondo, multiple members of the House testing positive just in the last day or two. Uh, our colleague, White House reporter Josh Wingrove, asked uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, exactly what the deal was with Speaker Pelosi just yesterday being seemingly in close proximity to the president at a bill signing event uh, and and whether the president was going to end up being tested daily. Here is Jen Psaki's uh, response to Josh's question. So it's the White House position that President Biden, 14 minutes, 7 feet away from Speaker Pelosi, is not a close contact, but 15 minutes, 6 feet away would have been a close contact. And I asked, by way of saying, was there a discussion of whether to treat him as a close contact anyway? Well, he is tested regularly, as you know. He was tested yesterday. He will be tested again soon. He's tested typically a couple of times a week. If he, is a, if he were a close contact, the only difference, or I don't even know that it would be a difference, would be a five-day a five te- test five days after your contact. The coughing sound in the background of that sound <laughs> concerns me. Uh, Matt, is, is the White House not taking this seriously enough? Or at least speak to, you know, we're seeing high-level uh, officials test positive. Should there be a little bit more of a, uh, a, a severe response to this? I, I don't know. I, I think that, look, the president has been uh, double-boosted. Uh, he is there. They are very careful with him. They know that he's, you know, 78 years old and, and he's otherwise in good health and, and vaccinated, but they have to be careful. And I think that they're probably doing what the White House physician's office uh, tells them to do. I mean, Jen Psaki herself has had COVID twice. Her deputy had COVID. Uh, the vice president's staff uh, have COVID. COVID is uh, everywhere in big cities right now. And Washington is no exception. I do think that um, they are following CDC protocols. They are doing what the um, experts tell them to do, and that's probably where they should be. Matt, I also want to ask a little bit about because, you know, Pelosi's announcement that she got COVID was quickly followed by an announcement that she would not be taking that trip that she had planned with the congressional delegation to Asia. Real quickly here, that trip was reported uh, by our colleagues in Japan that she was going to go to Taiwan. What was the significance of that? Well, uh, Taiwan is enormously significant at the moment because it is the other nation under threat, uh, you know, other than Ukraine. It's a very similar position where China has been um, for for decades wanting to unify right. China, they, and uh, they're, they're uh, thinking about doing that either economically or militarily. And so I think going to Taiwan, showing our support would have been very significant. And now canceling uh, Speaker Pelosi's trip, obviously quite significant with that COVID diagnosis. Thanks again to Congressman Ralph Norman for joining us, Hagar Chamali, as well as Matt Bennett and Greta Joins. With Emily Wilkins from Bloomberg Government, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.